Welcome back to the Baseball Trade Values Podcast. My name is Joshua Iverson, and I am the Associate Editor of BaseballTradeValues.com, joined, as always, by founder and owner John Bitzer. John, how's your week been treating you? It's been okay, but the weather's getting... Um, the winter is getting a little long. There's a blizzard outside my window right now here in New Jersey, and I'm tired of winter, and I want spring to come, and I know we're going to talk about that. Yeah, it's a sunny, beautiful 75 degrees here in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, perfect weather for them to, I guess, not play spring training games, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> but hey, hey, college baseball's back. That that was fun. Uh, yeah, I, I found myself watching a little bit of that and, and softball last night just to have something, you know, so I'm sure <laughs> others are doing that as well. Yeah, um, so, so let's, we may have a more traditional episode this week. We've finished our trade market domino series, at least for now. Maybe that's something we return to once the lockout is ending, if it, if it ever does. <laughs> um, so we have a bit more of a traditional structure this week. Um, going to talk about the lockout and some other news. Uh, I'm going to talk about some featured trades on the site. Going to go over the San Diego Padres, who I wrote an article about uh, last week, a roster revamp article. And then we'll get into some prospect stuff, some farm rankings, and uh, see, see where we're looking from there. Uh, but first, uh, let's talk lockout. Uh, unfortunately, it just seems like what we have to start every episode with this time of year. Uh, it, it's a whole lot has happened in the in the two weeks since our last episode. Um, the I, I guess the most significant bits of news before I kind of give my take. I have I, I warned John ahead of time. I I need to vent about the lockout for a couple minutes on this episode. I I have some feelings. Go for it. Um, but but before I get too far into those, let's just kind of talk the facts. So spring training, as I mentioned, postponed until at least March 5th, as the league announced. Um, and then there was a bit of a back and forth, as as there's been with every topic in the lockout. There was a back and forth between the league and the players on that one, where the league said, unfortunately, we must postpone games uh, for spring training. We don't want to, but we must. And then the league, uh, the players union uh kind of kicking back at that on Twitter a couple hours later saying they said they must, but uh, they, they don't actually have to. They're choosing to. They're the ones who locked us out. They can end it at any time, that kind of thing. Uh, so so as with everything else in this lockout, no bit of news is just one thing. There's always got to be an answer from the other side. <laughs> um, there, there have also been talks that February 28th is the league's deadline for getting a deal done and still having the season start on time. And kind of going hand in hand with that, uh, starting this Monday, uh, February 21st, it looks like, yes, uh, the league and the union are planning on meeting every day to discuss the CBA to negotiate. It's also unclear whether the players union agrees on that February 28th deadline, uh, but it at least seems like things will be ramping up next week. Um, and, and by the end of next week, I think we'll have a much better picture of what the season's going to look like, where things stand and how far apart we really are on things. Uh, very quickly, just to mention a few things that have uh, come up of the actual negotiations themselves. It seems overwhelmingly likely, uh, it's obviously not officially confirmed yet, but pretty, pretty likely we're having the universal designated hitter and uh, potentially elimination of draft pick compensation for free agents. Uh, Rob Manfred mentioned that those were two concessions that the league has made, although not sure how much of a concession you could really call the universal DH. That's a bit of a 
a weird topic <laughs> where yeah both sides want it but both sides are kind of arguing that the other side wants it more so it should you know be some firepower like hey we're gonna give you the universal dh because it helps you guys more so you need to give us something in return it seems like both sides are kind of saying that <laughs> which is come on if you guys just both want it let's just agree to it yeah um otherwise we have uh, the latest bit of news is in the uh the union's latest proposal uh they've kind of adjusted their push for arbitration uh rather they, they initially um they initially wanted all players to be arbitration eligible after two years uh, they've dropped that uh, under the current system the super two system i believe it's like 20 22 percent um of players with two years of service time are uh, become arbitration eligible super two eligible if they're in the, you know the higher higher service time category of those two-year players the top 22 percent there uh the the union's latest proposal has that number shifting to 80 so basically most second year or yeah most players with two years of service uh, under their belt will be arbitration eligible in that third year um seems very unlikely that the league will agree to that number that 80 percent number but doesn't seem unrealistic that by the end of this we could see expanded super two um, to include more players get players more money earlier in their careers um, and then there's also the big debate over the pre-arbitration bonus pool where the top players that are pre-arbitration eligible would be paid a bonus at the end of each season um, from a pool between every team and so it's not uh, it's not a situation where if one team has a bunch of young superstars in the first couple years of team control that team's going to go broke paying them <laughs> paying them uh, their bonuses um, it'll be kind of a league shared pool it sounds like but the two sides are very far apart on how much money is actually going to be in that pool um, so that's kind of the news updates I mean, there's there's a hundred other little bits and points i could get to here um, tidbits that have come out but that's kind of the uh the gist of it um before i hop on my soapbox do you have anything you want to mention about any of that stuff john so i'll just make a couple of general points so so the players need a win uh, they know that they kind of got the short end of the stick in the last two CBAs, so they're really unified and really determined to to not let that happen again. They're very aware that you know the rich have gotten richer. Uh, the owners, you know, it's it's no secret and it's been published that their value of their franchises keeps going up and up and up. They're making good money, and the players are not getting the slice of the pie that they want. So it's really about about money, and they really need a win um, to come back to the, the union with. I do think that um, they have a point. I mean, running a trade value site, what we find is that, you know, especially when you base it on surplus value, that's another way of saying players are underpaid. Uh, most of them are. And it's particularly true of the younger ones, the ones that are pre-ARB and ARB, uh, but especially the pre-ARB ones. I think there's a valid case to make that by the time you get to your third year, and you're still getting lead league minimum. And, you know, imagine um, Brian Reynolds or Pete Alonzo or one of those guys that are, you know, established now and very good. And they're still making league minimum. It doesn't seem quite right in their third year. So, and some will become super dues, but some, there's a whole list of players who are very good and have broken out that still won't. And so I think that's kind of a sticking point. Um, I do think that um, there's an, I was encouraged despite my sort of, somber mood last week about the you know the new not going anywhere it was encouraged by the the update uh, where there was a side meeting between two lead negotiators and it was you know fairly candid i'm, I'm 
I hear, and now the news is they're going to get together next week with more of a sense of urgency, potentially meeting every day. It feels like there's a deadline urgency that's starting to happen now, and that gives me a little hope. I think that is a fair assessment and a fair place to look for optimism, and I don't think I necessarily disagree with that. I think this upcoming week could be huge. This could be where we see the chips drop, and even if we don't necessarily get a full agreement, I think we can we'll start to see potentially the framework for one, mm. if things go well, we have a really good chance at that. And, and we haven't had a good chance at that throughout the entire process here. Um, real quick, before I get into my rant, uh, there were a couple other significant, somewhat significant uh, points that have come up in the last couple of weeks that I uh, overlooked and, and want to mention. Um, first of all, was uh, there was a Jeff Passon report a few days ago that MLB asked uh, the, the league as part of one of its recent proposals to uh, or ask the union to agree to cutting minor league jobs. So each team has 150 minor leaguers instead of 180. Uh, the league or the union, this is getting so confusing. <laughs> the union uh, promptly rejected that one, it sounds like, or at least has rejected past proposals that included that. Um, Let's see, going through here, another and, one. And good for them. I'm, I'm yes. glad they're sticking up for their, their minor league friends. Yes, we've already seen the minor leagues shrinking in previous years. We had the whole realignment uh, last offseason, I think that was, and the draft is getting smaller and all of that. Uh, that would just be another... The, the way to grow the game is not to to create less opportunities to play the game, you know? Um, and then uh, another significant note that came out and this was from ben nicholson smith uh just a couple days ago he said he heard the mlb players association has told mlb not to expect expanded playoffs in 2022 if players miss the chance to play a full 162 and be compensated for the full season so basically if this drags out and if the league tries to say oh because this went so late we can only play 150 games and we're only going to pay you for 150 games the players are saying all right fine but no expanded playoffs in 2022 and, and that's the biggest chip in the player's pocket expanded playoffs that's a whole lot of extra revenue for the league um and they're holding that hostage in order to get a full 162 game and, and and that's brilliant and i think that is their biggest chip to play and so it's good that they're using that as leverage now yeah all right so that kind of segues into what i want to say here so let me i'm frustrated uh, that, that that's kind of the the whole thing here is i'm frustrated uh, let me preface by saying I'm going to acknowledge a bit of pro player bias going into this. Um, just in, you know, I'm a fan and the players are the ones who I watch on the field and the ones who have the big moments for the club and the ones who get the big hits. They're the ones who have the cute little kids that run around on the field after the game. They're the ones as a journalist, as, as when I was going through school and even on my own time, they're the ones who I talk to, who I get the fun stories from, all of that. Um, never talked to an owner in my life, and I don't exactly expect to. Um, and having, being, having grown up as a fan of the A's in particular, ownership, not the best there. Ownership has restricted things a lot for that team um and, and made fandom a little bit harder has led to trading of players i really liked of players who were really productive um so gonna acknowledge that bias going into this however i feel pretty strongly that looking at just the facts of what has happened 
and what we do know about each side's proposals and what we do know about the timeline of said proposals, it seems so clear to me that the league is negotiating in pretty bad faith. And I'm also going to preface by saying I'm in no ways a labor uh, relations lawyer or anything anything near that i'm I'm not qualified to be speaking about this at anything other than a very general level i'm not levying levying any <laughs> big accusations of malpractice here or anything like that but it, it, the entire process i mean it's been you've probably heard it a thousand times the whole you know oh they, they should just come and meet in the middle and oh both sides are doing this and it's bad for the game but it's not true that both sides are doing it. It's true that one side implemented a lockout and then waited 43 days to submit their counterproposal, and that one side was the league. <laughs> and so all of this rush to get something done before opening day was kind of manufactured by that month and a half that the league waited to do anything. So, so point A there. <laughs> um, and then in every proposal... It has really, really seemed like the league gives the players an inch. So, so let's take the um, the arbitration pool for an example. So, so initially, when when the two sides had kind of agreed that they would, uh, in theory, in principle, have this arbitration or pre-arbitration pool uh, bonus pool, they were apart on it by about a hundred million dollars. I think it was the league was proposing a ten million dollar pool. The players were proposing 110 or something like that in one of the league's next proposals they bumped their pool up to 15 mil and i understand that you're not going to just give up all your ground with the next (laughs) next negotiation you're not gonna just say okay we'll meet you in the middle because then the other side can say well no (laughs) we're gonna stick where we are or we'll come like five million closer and now it ends up being more than the middle so i understand that's how negotiations work whatever but what they've been doing throughout the, the league has been doing throughout this whole process is they keep tying in these little these little strings, these little free riders. Um, I think that's the like the the government term for it when when there's a bill and people just keep attaching all these strings to it that aren't related to the mm-hmm. bill because they know they can sneak it in under the main bill. Is that is that free riders or something? I'm I'm not a political expert, but I'll go with that. But, yeah, <laughs> I I know I learned that term in, at some point. High school was a long time ago. <laughs> um, but it's they keep doing that you know they they sneak in things like oh we'll give you an extra five million in the bonus pool but we're gonna cut a bunch of minor leaguers or it it just keeps coming up where they sneak in something else like oh we're gonna give you another we're gonna increase the uh, luxury tax cap by a couple million each year but we're also gonna increase the penalties for going over it and make it an even harder salary cap Mm -hmm. and so it gets to this point where MLB has larger, like, like I think I've been pleasantly surprised by the support the union has had from the general public. And I know my, the, the people I follow on Twitter are nowhere near representative of the general public as a whole. They're curated. There are a lot of people who think more like me. Um, so I, so I acknowledge that upfront as well, but just in general, there seems to be, a much stronger pro player push like there's the, the players seem to have more support here than i kind of expected going into this i expected you know a lot of casual fans to just be mad at both sides or say oh these greedy players who make all this money they just want more um 
but it's been it's been pleasantly surprising. There's been a lot of support for the players, but still, the league has such a such a larger reach with its marketing, with its PR through MLB Network, where Rob Manfred hopped on the TV a few days ago and just kind of blatantly lied about the status of negotiations and what their recent proposal included and things like that and had to be corrected by a spokesperson for the league afterward. Like, he has this platform to go stand on TV on a channel that a lot of baseball fans have and, you know, a lot who might not be as in tune with every step of the negotiations, might not be as glued to Twitter as you or I, um, that might be one of the biggest updates they've heard on this whole thing. And they're hearing it all from the league's perspective and, and just Twitter and, and everything like that, that the league just has such a larger reach. And so they're able to kind of make things look better in their favor. And I mean, they keep kind of shooting themselves in the foot in that regard, but they at least have the ability to do so. And that can kind of mask what it seems like they're doing here, where they're kind of forcing the players to negotiate against themselves. And, and there was some buzz that the players considered not responding to the league's latest proposal, like not submitting a counter proposal because it was such a bad proposal. And they felt like that exactly, like they would be negotiating against themselves because we've seen a lot of concessions from the players. As I was just mentioned, they're, they're budging on on their their universal two-year arbitration um they already gave up the idea of age-based free agency which was a big one for them um they're they're coming off of some of their hard some of their biggest uh biggest what's the word i'm looking for <laughs> some of the 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 biggest things positions. that they were pushing for going into yeah. what was that positions yes yeah positions. some of their biggest positions yeah they're they're willing to come off of to compromise and to say hey you guys are the league you guys are really firm against this all right we won't push it we'll we'll work toward areas where we think we can find common ground yeah can find the middle they they've been willing to come off of some of those points and we just haven't seen and 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 doing it in the league's direction as well and saying okay yeah we will consider giving you expanded playoffs what number we don't know yet but we will expand the playoffs because we know that's really important to you but we need to have our needs met in return and the league just hasn't seemed to be doing that and then even on some of the topics that they are again they just attach these free riders where major league minimum salary um they're they're still pretty far apart in that i think a couple hundred thousand apart and from some of the initial negotiations it was the league saying okay we want it to be we want league salary to be 700 i'm pulling the numbers out of (laughs) out of nowhere i don't remember the exact numbers uh, but we want it to be 700,000 and then by the end of the CBA it'll increase to 800 or something like that. And even that was like only a little bit outpacing inflation and not anywhere near outpacing revenue growth within the game. <laughs> and then the the owner's counter to that was how about instead we go from 600 to 650 to 700 like first year major league minimum is 600, second year it's 650, third year it's 700. Uh, but you know how teams used to be able to <laughs> choose to give players more than the minimum if they wanted to? No, they can't do that anymore. So, so you're getting this much and you're happy with it and teams can't reward players who perform well. And so it's just more of that, like it feels like bad faith. And it's really frustrating that you have to be so plugged into all of this to understand that. And I really worry 
about the impact that these negotiations have on the health of the game as, as a whole. Yeah. Because I think a lot of people who aren't as plugged in as the two of us, who aren't seeing every update, it's really easy to write this thing off as they just don't care about the fans. Neither side yep. cares about the fans. They just care about money. And I, that's true to an extent, but I, I just <laughs> last point, and then, and then I'll get off my soapbox for now. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think it's really significant that bit that I mentioned earlier that the players are holding expanded playoffs hostage in exchange for 162 game season. I think that shows that the players' interests are much more aligned with the fans' interests than the owners. Yeah. The fans obviously really want 162 games and they want them on time, and that's what the players want too. And they're willing to hold out to make that happen. So yep. I, I think that is a really good sign from them, both in general and, and from like a PR standpoint. <laughs> But in general, I've just been overwhelmingly frustrated with negotiations, with how things have gone from the league's part. And this isn't to say that the players are infallible by any means. I mean, the only reason this is an issue is because the CBA negotiations, the players kind of got shafted in the past, that the union dropped the ball and and gave the, <laughs> the league too good of a deal. Yeah. But general frustration, and I... I I started out at the beginning of this with a lot more optimism and I know a lot of people have been concerned about the health of the game all the way through because it's a, it's a common trend. Everybody thinks baseball is dying all the time, (laughs) but I don't know. I I, I don't know if it's just taking a toll on me all these weeks of negotiations, but I am a little concerned about the health of the game and how much the league really cares about that versus lining their own pockets yeah okay yeah rant over you can talk <laughs> thank you and i i appreciate all your points and i can't say I disagree with them uh, i just want to um make a few myself first of all i think we're at the enough is enough stage it's late guys let's figure this out you, you know i i i think now we have a deadline that they're marching to as i said earlier uh, there's some urgency now they said they're going to meet every day starting next week it's about time guys uh, but let's get it done um larger point is i think it's about fairness as i mentioned earlier i think that the players think they got shafted in the last couple and i don't think they and they don't want to be i think they're willing to give a little bit and meet in the middle but they absolutely don't want to get shafted so that what that means is the owners are going to have to give they're going to have to meet in the middle they're going to have to give up some of their money they appear i agree with you they appear very greedy like every single one of their offers, like, yeah, here's an itch, yeah, here's an itch. And and that's all they're giving. And they don't want to, they just want to keep making the money they're making. And it seems short-sighted to me because a lot of them have interests that revolve outside of uh, baseball. A lot of them are tied into baseball, like real estate that surrounds the stadium, for example. That's what the A's are trying to build in Oakland. That's what Atlanta built. That's what Texas built. And there's a lot of those where they, they own the real estate and the development and all the money that comes from that. But if you don't have a stadium attracting fans, that's going to hurt that whole thing too. So there's a domino effect there. Um, so I think it's about, at the end of the day, I think it's about fairness. I think the owners are making a lot of money and you can check the books. The Atlanta Braves are owned by a public company. So you have to sort of, and so they're the only team where you can check, I think the Blue Jays maybe as well. So you can check how they're doing in terms of profitability. Yes, 2020 was a down year, but 2021, they were right back into very profitable. And that's not even including the appreciation of the fan franchise, their operating profits, which means they can afford to give a little bit. They're just being greedy here. I have to, I have to totally agree with you. 
Um, and it's not like the, the players are poor, but they are in a larger sense. First, they're, they're poor relative to the owners in a relative sense. So they're not looking to make that much money. They know the owners are far, far wealthier than they will ever be. But they're just, they just want a little bit more of the fair share that the owners are grabbing. And it gets also to a point of like, you mentioned baseball as a sport, and I agree that there's a, an issue there. If you think about it, and there's a lot of um, uh, stories coming out now about the struggling minor leaguers and how they're sleeping seven to an apartment and they're living on peanut butter, and, and, and that's true. If you think about it from that point of view, if you choose baseball as a career, if you're talented enough to do that, you know, let's say you even get drafted, you're looking at you know at least three years in the minors, and then you let's say even you're lucky enough to make the major leagues, you're getting three years of league minimum, and so now that's six years of, ba of making that much money, and then maybe you get a, a fraction of what you your market well your market value is in the ARB years. So nine years later, you finally get free agency and get paid what you're worth, and you know Kyler Murray comes to mind. He had a choice of football and baseball he went to football obviously because he loved it but also he got paid right away he got like a 16 million dollar contract right away now the a's would have given him a, a a signing bonus but then he would have had to ride buses and meet peanut butter for the next six years and so i don't think he wanted to do that and so that's going to dissuade a lot of athletes who are talented like he is from choosing baseball as a sport and to your point that's not good for the health of the game so they've got to address this you know young players being too underpaid is kind of what it comes down to and both at the minor league level and the pre-arb level and that's one of the big things they're they're trying to to fix um, they did come off the point about age-based free agency as you mentioned um, but they're very aware of the tricks that the owners are trying to pull with the salary cap and you know, Ben Clemens, I think, was at Fangraphs did a really good piece about like kind of the hidden bombs in that, and how that's actually going to hurt competitiveness and the players, you know, uh, down the road with like actually, you know, icing the market, the free agent market. So on the one hand, you know, you've got guys like Max Scherzer who just signed a deal to make forty-three million dollars a year with the Mets, and he's one of the player reps. But on the other hand, they're not making free agency that stage of the career. They're not making that big a deal of it because they know that was healthy, at least pre-lockout was. So they're focusing their energy on sort of the earlier years. But at the same time, they don't want to hurt the free agency with like a tighter salary cap. And I think they do have a point that um, teams have been tanking, and we know baseball, this is very true, where you go through cycles of winning and then rebuilding, and we see it with teams as we stand here today but the they want to make it more competitive and less sort of boomer bust and i and that from a from a player standpoint that means you know they want to you know free agents they want more teams participating in the free agent market they want to be they want to see the the orioles and the pirates and the a's be able to retain their players and not trade them away maybe even see science free agents so because it becomes a more robust market and so they're very aware that if the if the owners put tighter restrictions on the salary cap then that's going to hurt that so so that's an issue for them as well but more importantly they just care about like the competitiveness excuse me the competitiveness of the sport and so i think all of those points are at play here i think it's about fairness i think it's about the long-term health of the game in terms of talented players choosing not to play it and i think it's about the fans in terms of you know competitiveness you know not wanting to see a team re rebuilding for five years so it's at the enough is enough stage. I just want to make a couple of small points as well. You know, once we start canceling 
games. And I know we only canceled like a week of spring training, but you also got to think about the other sort of after effects, the domino effects of people not getting paid. The people who work at those stadiums in spring training have no jobs. The the businesses around them are not getting traffic. The people, the fans who book their trips are not going to be able to go there. And I'm seeing a lot of stories about that. And so that's sad. Um, one thing we can do as fans, uh, you might think we're powerless at this in this, but we're actually not. Um, you know, one thing we can do is you're getting probably emails about, hey, buy tickets to opening day. Like, probably don't want to do that right now if you're not sure that there's actually going to be an opening day. So you can, you know, vote with your wallet that way. But there's also uh, those of you who have MLB uh, TV, uh, as do I, that auto renews on March 1st. And that's a free 50 or $60 or whatever they're charging. You know, if you, you can just cancel the auto renew. Uh, this was suggested by several national writers, Craig Calcaterra being one of them and say, okay, don't loan them $50 now, especially if you don't like what they're doing and locking out the players. Just cancel your order. You can always, if they get back together and get the season started, you can always just renew it then. But don't give them money now. That, so vote with your wallet. That's one thing you can do as well. So all of those points, I just wanted to get in. I agree with you, and there are some things we can do, and I hope they get it done soon. I think those are all excellent. And I have two last things to say, both kind of piggybacking off uh some of those points you made first of all i'm really glad you uh you brought up the real estate kind of (laughs) angle of it um it's there's there's been graphs on twitter Um, i'm pretty sure grant brisby uh tweets one out every now and then (laughs) of just revenue growth in baseball compared to player salary growth and just how much it's taken off the last 10 20 years especially and how much faster league revenue is growing than player salaries. And so that's what it is. It's like you said, it's about fairness. It's about players getting a more fair cut of the pie. If the sport is very profitable, why should only the owners get to benefit from that? Why shouldn't the players be benefiting from that just as much? Um, And one of the reasons it's become so profitable is because teams just have so many more diverse revenue streams and so many larger re- revenue streams than they did before you know it's it's the obvious it's the gate revenue tickets concessions all that and you know the the local tv networks and, and some of the local tv deals are gigantic now then there's revenue sharing from the league then there's the uh, uh mlb advanced media uh, that every team gets every year there's the national uh, national TV deals that get spread amongst the teams there. And then there's each team's real estate <laughs> ventures that are related to the team. Uh, you mentioned a few right there with the Rangers and the Braves and the A's plans. And then also the Cubs have something going, I'm pretty sure. And, and it, it seems like more and more teams are jumping in and trying to make baseball a real estate business as well by kind of expanding around their ballpark. But, and, and I mean, sure, they have every right to do so. But those funds aren't generated, at least to the same extent. You know, if there's if there's a restaurant right outside of the A's new park uh, that, that is owned by the team, owned by the owners, sure, it's going to generate revenue no matter what. But if, if the baseball team never plays there, if the players never play at that stadium, it's not going to generate anywhere near as much revenue as it would during the season when they are playing there. And so don't the players deserve a cut of that profit as well? And so it's the more revenue streams come and that they're all tied to the game, you want to see the players getting what they deserve from that, right? Yeah, <laughs> Get, Getting point. what's fair. Yeah. Um, 
and then that ties into the last thing I want to say, which is you, you mentioned the little guys, you know, the, the spring training concession workers who are missing out right now, who really sometimes even depend on that revenue stream or the security or the parking or, or the field ops or whoever. Um, and, and living in Phoenix, I know firsthand how big of an impact spring training has on the local economy here, how big of a deal it is actually freshman year of college. I helped work on a study about that, about exactly that, about how many hundreds of millions of dollars spring training brings to Arizona every single year. Um, and I see that that's kind of the next most uh, popular response that I see to a lot of these things is like, I'm not with the players or the owners. I'm with the minor leaguers. I'm with the concession workers, blah, 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 blah. I have two issues with that. One, that they're not, unfortunately, they're not a represented party in this negotiation. So yes, I agree with you that their plight the, the plight of the minor leaguers and of the other employees that are missing out on this, it's a much larger, it, it should matter more than even the player, even the major league players increasing their minimum salary by a hundred thousand dollars or whatever. Like I, I agree with you there, but that's not really relevant to the discussion because that's not an option here. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, it, it's, it's like saying, Every time somebody complains that they're hungry, it's like saying, oh, but there's people starving in Africa. Like, yeah, th there are, but that that can't diminish from the fact that, hey, I'm, I'm kind of hungry. Like, <laughs> it, multiple things can be issues at once and for various degrees, but we can only address what we can address in the moment. And right now in this negotiation, it's binary. It's it's the players or it's the owners. It's the league. Um, and, and then point number two on that is which side do you genuinely think has those parties best interests what, what which side in this in of the players versus the league more closely aligns with the ideals and with the best interests of those affected parties of the minor leaguers of the concession workers do you think it's the players who used to be minor leaguers themselves many of whom face these same struggles some of them are even vocal about it today um, the, the guys that, you know, they go down on a rehab assignment and they buy all the single A team, a steak dinner that night, <laughs> like those guys and, and the guys who interact with the security and concessions, people at the ballparks every day and, you know, make friends with some of them, the ball boys, whoever, do you think those guys are more in line with, with what those guys want and, and will have their best interest in mind or, or at least something close to it? Or do you think it's the owners who have been responsible for underpaying these minor leaguers and for their poor living conditions and who have been responsible for choosing to implement a lockout and costing spring training games, which costs revenue for these employees. Um, something, something to think about if, if your response to all of this is, I actually don't care about them. I just care about the little guys. Well, which side do you think cares more about the little guys too? And which side cares more about the game as well. And so there was a quote from uh, Dayton Moore, the GM of the Kansas City Royals. Um, it might have been from a year or two ago, um, but he was asked a question about, you know, what's the, you know the, the issue of cutting minor leaguers' pay or cutting off, cutting out minor league teams, and I think it was about minor league pay actually during that um, pandemic when some teams were not 
choosing to play their players. And he, he was defending the Royals and saying, yes, we definitely will be paying, paying our players. It's short-sighted to not pay them because it's good for the good of the game. And because if you think about it, a lot of those players are not going to make it to the major leagues. But what they what they are going to do is become ambassadors to this, of the sport in other ways. They'll they'll become coaches, they'll become dads, they'll become, you know, um, you know, ancillary to, to the game in other ways. I know this firsthand. My son is a little leaguer and he's taking lessons right now from a guy who didn't make it, but who's a really good hitting coach. And so like, there's, you know, you, if you want to expand the game and keep it, say nothing of expanding it, just keep it alive, keep it growing. You want to treat these baseball players well, even the ones who may not make it because it's the right thing to do. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> All right. I'm exhausted. <laughs> All right. Are, uh, Let's get some, some to... fun stuff. Yeah. 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 I, I'm glad we got that out of the way at the beginning. And now we can uh, talk the fun trades and things that we want to see happen once, once baseball world gets back to normal. Um, yes. Let's, <laughs> let's transition to that before, before we get to any actual fun stuff. A um, couple more pieces of news that are not the happiest. A um, couple injury updates. Uh, the Rangers' top prospect, Josh Young, is shut down due to a labrum strain in his shoulder. Uh, we don't have a real timetable there. He's their top prospect, uh, third baseman. He was kind of slated to take over that role sometime this season, or at least uh, uh, hypothetically um, pro- projected to take over at some point, uh, being one of the better prospects in the game and with their obvious hole at third base. Um, and his readiness was kind of a factor for a lot of people speculating whether Isaiah Kiner-Falefa would be traded after the Rangers signed Marcus Simeon and Corey Seager to play the middle infield spots. They didn't really have a clear long-term position for Kiner-Falefa with Young taking over third base more than likely. Um, and, and I still don't have a long-term solution for him. This doesn't seem like Young's going to be out forever or his long, long-term picture is too significantly impacted here. Uh, but in the short term, it makes more sense for the Rangers to hang on to Kiner Falefa. Maybe they still do look to move him. Maybe, you know, the, they, they get a good offer that they can't refuse from the Yankees or whoever. Um, and they do still decide to pull the trigger there and sign a free agent or fill in with some other young players at third base while they wait for Young. Um, but you'd have to imagine this makes it less likely that they do trade Kiner Falefa. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think it's a wait and see kind of thing. Um, but yeah, something like that, you probably want to be a little bit more careful and not just bring him up opening day. Not that he was going to be, but it sounds like IKF is going to have a job at third for a while at least. Yeah, and, and especially, you know, if you're a team like the Rangers, who we've talked about it in the past, we don't think they're in a position yet to contend. We think they're kind of, I don't want to say jump the gun because that has like negative connotations, but they they were aggressive in free agency and added to a team that wasn't necessarily good enough for, for Seager and Simeon and John Gray to be, you know, the last pieces they needed to make a run. Um, so if, if they are looking at more of a 2023 timetable, why not just take your time with young, get him healthy and uh, try and contend down the road with a, when he's fully operational. Exactly. All right. And then the other one is we had some news come out uh, just this weekend, I believe that Matt Allen uh, the, one of the Mets top pitching prospects um, who was still rehabbing Tommy John surgery that he underwent last May. Um, we heard that he did have a slight setback. Um, he had a surgery to get a nerve moved in January. Um, apparently he's still slated to start throwing in early March like he was before and that he's not ruled out for this year, but 
Uh, the focus is going to be getting him fully healthy before they get him back to the mound, obviously. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's, it's another situation where not sure exactly how much they would have even wanted, would have even expected him to contribute to the team, even if he was hundred percent healthy, even if he hadn't torn his UCL, I, I think he's still a little bit off and, and with where that team is right now, they probably want more certainty. Uh, they're, they're making a push. They're spending a lot of money. They're not going to, uh, hinge their season on, on an unproven top prospect regardless of his health. <laughs> um, but you, you couldn't picture him potentially factoring into their depth since their pitching depth is a little thin and they probably need a fifth starter. Um, this, so him, him having a little setback, uh, being even less likely to pitch for the big league club at all this year. If, if even next year, we'll have to see, um, that just makes it all the more important for them to find a back end solution to, to help fortify their rotation. Yeah. I, I, we're not medical experts, so we don't know what, if any, this will have since we're running a trade value site on their values. So we're just playing the wait and see game. I'm, you know, I, someone said on Twitter that it's, it's not, I think one of the reporters said, um, it's probably in Malin's case, it's probably not, um, a serious issue with that. It's fairly common, uh, to have a setback like that. Don't know if that's true or not. Uh, same with, uh, the case of young. So we're just going to wait and see on both of them. Yep. Sounds good. All right. It is time for featured trades. We haven't had these in a while. I mean, I guess you could argue our last four episodes were exclusively featured trades, <laughs> but this is a little more curated. Um, so first one here is from user Colmich22, who comes up in these all the time. He uses the site very frequently, and he has a lot of good ideas. Um, so this is a straight one-for-one -one trade between the Marlins and the Orioles. The Marlins acquire outfielder Austin Hayes, who we have at $19.4 in trade value, in exchange for right-handed pitcher, Edward Cabrera, who we have at 17.9. Uh, so pretty even on the values, a little bit of wiggle room, but that's well within our margin of error. Uh, the Marlins side of this deal has 27 thumbs up and six thumbs down. The Orioles side has 32 thumbs up and 12 thumbs down. And yeah, I think it, it just, just glancing at it at first, it was like, really? Like, like, is that, is, is that there? <laughs> um, uh, but I think that's because I hadn't updated my, perception of Austin Hayes. Um, I, I kind of remembered how he burst onto the scene in 2019 and then, and then took a step back in 2020, but I hadn't recalibrated for what was a pretty solid 2021 season. Um, he's seen as a pretty capable, if not quality center field defender. Um, he's got the power and he's got, you know, something, something around a league average bat, maybe a little bit better than average. Um, and for the Marlins who don't, have a center fielder on their roster at all and have been very vocal in looking for one and likely we've talked in the past about how difficult it might be for them to acquire Cedric Mullins or Brian Reynolds at this time. Um, th this makes a lot of sense for them and especially moving from their pitching surplus. Um, Edward Cabrera is a bigger name and he's got the upside you can dream on, but a lot of risk there, both with injury relief risk Um just a just a poor start to his major league career in 2021 so there's some question marks there which might make him one of those arms that the marlins choose to move on from since they have such a depth of arms there and on the Orioles side of thing it's it's cabrera who's nearly major league ready and another high upside arm to join grayson rodriguez dl hall some of those other arms in the system that's that's getting ready to to form a contender within these next couple years so i think he fits their timeline pretty well um, Hayes isn't a guy they have to trade. He does still have four years of team control remaining, 
uh, he's still pre-arb. Uh, I mean, depending on how the CBA changes the definition of pre-arb or anything like that, we'll have to see. Um, but as of now, at least, he's still four years, very affordable. But he's also not necessarily a piece you need to build around. And they have some outfield prospects. They have Cedric Mullins. They have Anthony Santander, uh, both at the big league level. So not a guy that they can't afford to lose, I would say. So, I mean, I, I still don't know if it's... I, th I think that's really the only hang-up, is if the Orioles do see him as a piece where, yeah, we think we'll be good at some point in the next four years. We want to hang on to him. Um, but I, I personally would not see him like that if I were them and I would like this a lot for them. So I, I'm a fan. Yeah. I think that's just the one potential hangup I could see. Yeah. I, I couldn't disagree with any of those points and I, I, I kind of see it the same way. The first time I saw this trade, I was like, huh, that's interesting. Cause I didn't, you know, you don't really think about Austin Hayes much. At least I don't like, cause he gets kind of like lost in the shuffle. Everyone's thinking about Mullins. But like, Oh yeah. What about Hayes? He's, he's all right. He's actually better than all right. Like you pointed, like pointed out, he's, he had a decent season. So, Probably a higher floor guy than a higher ceiling guy, but the, there's a lot to be said for four years of control of a high floor guy, and the Marlins are looking to try to take a step up. So I, I can see them being interested in him, and obviously they have a surplus of pitchers from which to trade. So, and Cabrera is there's a difference of opinion on him, like well, sometimes wildly different. Some I think it was Keith Law who has him as their top pitching, pitching prospect, others who don't. And he struggled a little bit in his first major league outings or two, as you, as you mentioned. So there's not like, he's not like a slam dunk, you know, and he's not like the most highly rated pitcher. So I think it's a fair trade. And I think it makes sense uh, because you're just shifting the timelines in a way. The, the, obviously the Orioles have not started on their window yet. Whereas the Marlins kind of feel like they've started on their window with some of the young players they already have. And so I think Austin Hayes probably fits their window a little bit better than, than Cabrera does. And they've certainly got a lot of pitchers to, uh, to, to, to choose from already. So I think it makes sense from both sides. I do want to point out a um, really interesting comment on this one from Orioles fan 1964, who brings up that as an Oriole, Austin Hayes' power will be diminished by the Cam Yards left field remodel. Which is a really, Great really point. good point. Yeah, the, if, if, yeah, if any listeners haven't seen or, or heard of it, uh, Camden Yards is being adjusted and, and left field is being pushed back like 15, 20 feet or something like that. It's pretty significant. Um, and I think the wall's being raised too. So it's it's there's some concerns there for guys like Austin Hayes, Trey Mancini, Ryan Mountcastle. Um, the, the expectation is that it'll make Camden, Park, uh, Camden Yards play more neutrally. And th that's not to say that in this trade, Hayes is going into a bandbox or anything, because Marlins Park, uh, excuse me, excuse me, Lone Depot Park <laughs> is not <laughs> a bandbox by any means. It's it's also tends to be a bit more pitcher friendly, at least the last time I checked the park factors. Um, but you could see a team, if, if Hayes is more of a pull power type guy, you could see that they want to move him now before he you know, sees that power dip in his stats in 2022 or something like that. Yeah. Sell high, buy low. Exactly. Sell high on Hayes, <laughs> buy low on Cabrera. Makes sense. <laughs> exactly. And that, that seems like a, a very Astros thing to do, which is fitting since uh, Astros, Mike Elias, is that his name? Why, why am I blanking yeah. on his name? Mike Elias? I yeah. I think so. I think yeah. so. Yeah. He now runs the, the Orioles, former Astros employee. Uh, running the show in Baltimore, and so seems very much uh, down that down that alley. All right, let's move on to featured trade number two, 
This is from user Slateman. It's between the A's and the Padres. Has the Padres acquiring Matt Olson, first baseman. We have it 45.3 in median trade value. In exchange, the A's get Robert Hassel, top outfield prospect at 38.7. Ryan Weathers, left-handed pitcher, 10.1. And third base prospect, Erubiel Angeles. Yeah, him. <laughs> at, uh, at 2.4 million. So in total, a little bit more headed to the A's, 51.2 million compared to 45.3 headed to the Padres. A's side of this has 27 thumbs up and 18 down. Padres has 22 up and five down. So a little more controversial, controversial on the A's side, a little more popular on the Padres side. Um, and there's some really good discussion in the comments on this one. And we're, we're going to use this as kind of a jumping off point to transition into my article on the Padres. Um, so I think I'll, I'll let, uh, I'll let John break this one down first, since I have a whole lot of talking about the Padres ahead of me. Uh, I, yeah. I will let him get a turn first. So for the Padres point of view, I think it makes a lot of sense. Matt Olson be reunited with his old manager, Bob Melvin, and they certainly need an upgrade on it first. So, um, obviously begs the question, what, what are you going to do with Hosmer? That would have to be dealt with in a separate uh, trade, obviously, because you'd be bumping Hosmer off at least to the bench, if not off the roster. Um, so I think it makes a lot of sense for the Padres. You know, the question is, are they willing to give up Hassel and Weathers when trade? I think from the A-side, they would have to demand Hassel as the lead piece. Uh, Abrams is probably a little too far out of reach, but Hassel, their second best prospect, um, would have to be, I think, for a quality player in two years of control uh, with Olsen, they'd have to leave it Hassel. So that, that to me, from the A's point of view, would be a no-brainer and non-negotiating. You have to leave with Hassel. The only question is, are the other two pieces, you know, do they make the most sense? I think Weathers makes sense because he's already sort of major league ready. And, you know, if the A's are going to trade off three of their starters, as has been rumored, they're going to use, they're going to need somebody to take the, take the bump there. So Weathers could fit that bill. Uh, the last piece on Helis, I think, is just a throw in to kind of win the bid because uh, Olsen will have a lot of bidders. And so he's just sort of a lottery ticket to dream on. But I think the package makes sense. So I'm not sure why A's fans would not be uh, voting up for it because I think it's probably one of the better packages I've seen actually for Olsen. So um, yeah, it makes sense to me. Yeah, the A's have needs at every position on the farm, essentially. <laughs> it, there, there was. An article in The Athletic by Melissa Lockard, uh, I think a couple months ago at this point. Um, she's great and, and very in tune with the prospects in the Bay Area. Um, and it was kind of like, I think it was just kind of a breakdown of like what they might expect to trade for if they do trade some of these veterans. And it was like, yeah, well, they need some catching depth in the, in the minors, especially the upper minors, because, you know, they lost a couple of their minor league free agents there. Um, and they also need some infield depth and, and they could also use some outfielders and you know what? They don't have many pitchers and it's like, yep, they, they have a bad farm. Just, just say <laughs> they have yeah, a very, we'll get to that. yeah, we will get to that, but they have a very top heavy farm led by a catcher who probably isn't a catcher in Tyler Soderstrom <laughs> and yeah. not a whole lot. I mean, there's some interesting guys behind that, but nobody with significant uh, prospect appeal or, or trade That's value. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so they could really use help everywhere, and I do agree that Weathers is a good fit, and, and he kind of fits, not quite, but a little bit reminiscent of the Drew Pomeranz mold of, you know, he might be kind of swing man moving back and forth between the rotation and the bullpen, but it seems like he's going to be a quality left-handed arm, and in the immediate and long-term future, the A's just need some innings, and so 
and, and he has some pedigree. So it's not like he's just an innings eater or anything like that. He's got some upside in there. Um, and yeah, then, and he's still young. He's had some struggles, but he's still young. Yeah. I, I, the the counterpoint to this I could see is maybe, and I, I don't think this is why it got down votes for the A's side, but it's it's one explanation I could think of, is that maybe instead of Hassel, you'd prefer two or three pieces in that spot because the A's have so many needs on the farm. You might prefer a handful of 10 million type guys instead of one 40 million <laughs> trade value type guy. Um, but also contrary to that, we've, we've heard the A's be very vocal, especially in the draft, but also in trades about how they kind of have to shoot for the moon, get the highest upside they can, since they can't attract the big free agents. They can't extend their big star players. So they have to constantly be looking for the next superstar uh, rather than taking the safer pick. So that one can go both ways. But yeah, uh, from the A side, I like it. I don't see any real problems. I think they're getting a fair deal here. Um, and, and I think there's a lot of reasons that this is complicated and why I might not like it as much actually from the Padres side. And I think uh, unless you have anything to add about this trade specifically, we can use that to jump off. Yeah, go for it. All right. So roster revamp number two, <laughs> San Diego Padres. Uh, they have a lot of work to do. Uh, this is not going to be an easy rest of the offseason for A.J. Preller, which is a bit concerning because the rest of the offseason, once the lockout ends, might constitute like a week of transactions and then jumping <laughs> into spring training and trying to sort the rest of it out. So not envious of Preller's position in any regard, but if anyone can handle it, it's him. Um, allow me to preface everything I'm about to say here with A.J. Preller hates us. He breaks our system on a yearly basis, and so he could prove everything I'm saying wrong. He could find a way to trade Eric Cosmer for Mike Trout. I wouldn't put it past him. <laughs> so uh, there's, okay. there's this little voice in the back of my mind that just says, like, everything I lay out in this article is logical, and Preller could completely just turn it all on its head anyway. So just want to get it, get out in front of that one. Okay. Um. But anyway, the Padres are in a bit of a bind because they were such a disappointing team. They were so hyped. They spent so much money and so many prospects um, to improve their team for 2021. And then they just collapsed down the stretch, fell behind both the Dodgers and the Giants. And, you know, I, we've talked before on this podcast that we don't necessarily believe in the Giants. I don't think anybody uh, with without orange and black colored glasses um can look at the Giants and see a team that will win 100 games again next season. I think that's just foolish. Uh, but they are a better team than we gave them credit for. I, I, I will concede that. And they will be at least trying to be competitive. So it's not going to be as much of a two-horse race as we anticipated it being going into 2021. So they, they have some competition there, and the, the D-backs might be lurking, and the Rockies don't want to rebuild, so they're not going to just be pushovers, I guess. <laughs> So it's a competitive division. The Padres have some very noticeable holes and they don't have a lot of money or prospects to work with. And we've talked about time and time again on this show. If you have a need, there are two ways you can fill that. You can spend money, you can trade prospects. And with the Padres not having a whole bunch of either, it makes upgrading really, really hard. Um, so basically they're projected by roster resource, their 2022 payroll at 199 million, which is, blows their previous records out of the water 2021 they were at 174 million um, at the end of the year 
And that's before the Padres really do anything to fix their roster. They've, they've made a couple moves this offseason. They traded Adam Frazier to the Mariners. Um, Frazier, who they picked up from the Pirates' last trade deadline, and that didn't work out at all. He was pretty terrible in the second half, but they traded him to the Mariners for a couple lower-level prospects, basically salary salary relief since he's uh, projected to earn $7.5 million in arbitration this year, and they didn't really have a clear need for him, uh, the Padres, that is. They also kind of cleaned up the bullpen a little bit, uh, exercised a couple options. Craig Stammen and Pierce Johnson declined the option on Keone Keela, uh, non-tendered Trey Wingenter, Jose Castillo, Matt Strom. Mark Melanson walked. He declined his player option and signed a deal with the D-backs. So some money clearing out there. Um, they also, curiously, <laughs> traded for Jorge Alfaro from the Marlins. Um, Preller kind of went on a spree this offseason of picking up former Rangers. Um, First, it was Jerickson Profar who exercised his own player option. He hasn't been very good, uh, and he was signed to a pretty player-friendly deal that I think we both questioned at the time since it had these player options. Um, but he will be back as kind of a super utility guy for them. Uh, and then they picked up Alfaro from the Marlins, even though they already have kind of a logjam at catcher. And they also uh, took a flyer on Nomar Mazzara on a minor league deal. So all the former Rangers are coming back Uh Preller used to work with the Rangers, and it seems like he's identifying some of his guys that he wanted and, and picking them up where he can. And then they also made a few free agent additions, uh, picking up a couple relievers in Luis Garcia, who had a really good year for the Cardinals last season as a, as a veteran. Uh, Robert Suarez, who has not pitched in the majors before, but was fantastic in, in Japan, the Nippon Professional Baseball League. And Nick Martinez, another former Ranger, who also was very good in NPB. He's a starter. And that deal actually isn't fully complete yet, uh, but everything's agreed to. They just need to kind of sign the dotted line after the lockout ends. He's going to be a Padre. There's very, very low chance anything happens there. And then last thing, as you mentioned, they did bring in Bob Melvin from the A's, uh, cut, cut ties with Jace Tingler, upgraded to Bob Melvin, who's one of the most respected managers in the game. Uh, there were some clubhouse issues down the stretch while they were struggling last year, and they're hoping he can work to fix those. As far as what they need right now, as you mentioned, first base is a big issue. Eric Hosmer, not good, <laughs> but owed a lot of money down the stretch. Uh, $20 million in 2022, and then he has a op uh, player option, but he's almost certainly going to opt into the rest of his contract, three years and $39 million after that, which isn't... You know, it isn't total albatross money. 339 isn't the worst thing in the world, but he's projected to not provide much of any value then. He's a league average bat. And, and if you're a league average bat at first base, it really doesn't matter how good the glove is. And, and especially since sometimes he hasn't even been a league average bat at first base. So that's a big issue for them. Another big money issue comes in Will Myers, who's also making a good chunk of money. And again, not that good of a player. <laughs> he's... He's a little bit better of a hitter than Hosmer, but doesn't really have the glove to play any position on the field. He should probably be a DH, maybe a first baseman, but I don't think he's their solution there either. Uh, they need some outfield help. Like I said, they signed Nomar Mazzara to a minor league deal, and right now on roster resource, he's their starting left fielder. That's not good. <laughs> they they need If they're going to catch up to the Dodgers, they need a little bit better than that. Um, and then... You know, they could use some arms, but it's not necessarily a priority, and I think they have so many other bigger needs and, and so little resources to address those that I think that's going to be way down the list. 
they like I mentioned, they have a logjam at catcher that they could decide to trade from. Austin Nola is their starter. They traded for Alfaro, so you have to think he's going to be the backup. Uh, that leaves their 2021 backup, who is Victor Caratini. He's got 1.9 million in median trade value. Uh, he's kind of on the outs. He does have an option remaining, and he was kind of Yu Darvish's personal catcher. Uh, but it's hard to see their roster working with three catchers on it, even if a guy like Alfaro can play a little outfield, Nola can play the infield. Um, it's just a crowded roster in terms of guys who have guaranteed contracts that, you know, I don't know if they'll be able to make three catchers work. And then one of their top prospects, Luis Campusano, has been a popular trade candidate. Uh, he's at $22.2 million. Uh, He was one of the top catching prospects in the game. That's kind of, his star has kind of faltered a little bit in the last couple of years, hasn't made his major league debut, um, or has made his major league debut, but didn't impress. So he's a popular one. Uh, the, their only other significant prospects that they could trade are C.J. Abrams, who we have at 68.3, and Robert Hassel, who we have at 38.7. And those are the two big, big ones. Um, we haven't seen, I mean, I guess occasionally we've seen Preller move the big ones, but when he did, it was when he had a very stacked farm. It's it's hard to tell if, if Preller's really going to completely vacate the farm right now um that if he trades either one of Hassel or abrams or even both that's kind of indicating very clearly that it's all in right now preller's only planning on the next couple years of contention and then the padres are probably going to have to enter some sort of a rebuild um and and even beyond that uh trading abrams is particularly difficult right now he's coming off of a pretty significant leg injury and so other teams might be waiting to uh, to see until to see him get back on the field, make sure his leg is healthy before they're committing to a significant trade for a guy like that. Um, so he might even be difficult to deal. And at that point, it's only hassle. So I don't anticipate Preller moving either of those guys. If they want a big, big player, that's kind of who they have to move. Uh, but I just, excuse me, I don't see it happening. The middle of their farm is where the Preller has been really good at moving from um, in all these deals. Back a couple years ago, back when we started the site, their farm was just something to look at. It was just so many prospects and so many interesting guys in that like five to seven or eight million dollar value range. And he just kept packaging them for upgrades on the roster at every position, both in the offseason, at the deadline, whatever. That was kind of the MO. Well, now they ran out of those guys. <laughs> they only have yep. a few left. And a lot of them have their own issues. You know, Mackenzie Gore at 9 million and Adrian Morejon at 6.6 million. That's two of them. And Gore has had some injury issues and his stock has fallen a ton. And it's don't really know what you have with Gore. He used to be getting Kershaw comps, but now it's it's kind of a make or break year for him. And Morejon is rehabbing from Tommy John surgery. So that section of the farm where he's so comfortable dealing from isn't, it isn't there anymore. <laughs> um, yes. And then there, there's a couple other names, but I think I'll get to them. Uh, I'll, I'll move ahead to the deals that I'm proposing here. Can I just um, yes, yes, one? go ahead. So, so they actually went over the luxury tax limit in 2021, which is a sign, and they've never done that before, as far as I can remember. So, which is a sign that they are in fact all in. And, you know, they went to all this trouble to build this roster and they fell short. And so 
the question now is now what do we do are we still all in you got to think the answer is yes they just need to fill a couple more holes and you know some of these guys are only on the roster for another year or so so I, time is a factor as well so the question of whether you trade some of these prospects that at least still have some value it's got to be on the table if you are in fact going for it. Otherwise, what the heck are you doing? <laughs> that's my question. So I'll leave it at that. Yeah, I think that's a really fair point. Um, I, I the the holdup for me, I, because you know you make a good point that a lot of these players are only under team control for another couple of years. I mean, obviously, Tatis and Machado are there forever, <laughs> and Cronenworth, Grisham, they're still pretty young. They're still under control for a while. But you look at their rotation. Joe Musgrove, Yu Darvish, Blake Snell, Mike Clevenger, all of those guys are gone either next year or the year after. Right. And those are four very talented starting pitchers. And so after them, who do they have? They have Nick Martinez that they just signed, and they have some prospects. I mean, like I said, Mackenzie Gore and Weathers, who we discussed earlier, and then a couple interesting-ish names after that, but none of those guys with anywhere near the pedigree of guys like, like, like you know Gore used to have or... Uh, like uh, Luis Patino, who they traded away. They used to have a pretty stacked farm in every position, and, and especially at starting pitcher. Not so much anymore. So I think I do see the argument there. Um, but it's just, I, I have a hard time seeing them line up with a team on a C.J. Abrams deal, given the injury. And because he is a guy whose game's going to rely so much on speed, who just had a significant leg injury, I think that's going to give teams pause. And if you're talking Abrams in a deal, you're talking a guy like Jose Ramirez or... Brian Reynolds or someone like that, a really, really valuable player on the other end coming back. And I don't know if other teams are going to be willing to bite the bullet on the the risk that's present there in Abrams. And then so if you're not able to find any home for Abrams, then it's like, okay, we got this one guy hassle and we know we have a long-term outfield need. It, does it make sense to quote unquote, push all your chips in if you can only actually push half of them in? I don't know. I, I can see the argument on Hassel. I have a hard time seeing Abrams, though. Okay. All right. Now let's get into the deals. And, and since I kind of had that mindset, just a warning, they're not. Uh, these deals don't include them trading uh, Hassel or Abrams. They also don't include them trading Hosmer. I don't think they have any, any kind of a chance to trade uh, Eric Hosmer. I think, you know, first base only and just so underwater doesn't really bring like like there's some other guys some other underwater contracts that have been traded in the past where they at least have some sort of a little silver lining like you can squint and say like oh he can help us out in that way maybe he's not worth 30 million a year or whatever but he can help us out in this specific thing he can platoon against left-handed pitchers or something like that he's got good splits there mm -hmm. but yep. that's not the case for Hosmer at all he's really just kind of taking up a spot on the roster and it, it's not even like you know for a while there he had like an every other year thing going on uh that's that's over he's just not good anymore <laughs> there's no other way to put it so i don't like their chances to trade him there just aren't that many teams that seem interested in taking a guy like that on i mean the royals have been speculated a bit but they seem like they want to contend too and so i uh, i mean Carlos Santana is their first baseman, and he's better than Eric Hosmer. They have Nick Prado coming up the line. They have uh, – there's another first base prospect that kind of broke out in their system. 
whose name I'm blanking on, but they're going to want a spot for him. So they're not going to clog up first base or DH with Eric Hosmer right now, I don't think. And, and beyond that, I don't see any really great fits. I mean, Orioles, sure, whatever. But <laughs> it, it would involve them trading Hassel, if not Abrams. Um, and I, I don't, I don't think that's what I don't think Preller wants to concede one of his most valuable players in the organization uh, just to get out from under that contract, especially since after this year, the contract becomes a lot more palatable. So I think instead they take a different approach to kind of cut finances, get things back in the check. So the first deal here comes from user KXW and it has the, uh, the, the Padres adding corner infielder Patrick Wisdom at 10.1 million in median trade value from the Cubs in exchange for Will Myers at negative 12.8 and Luis Campusano at 22.2. So 9.4 headed to the Cubs and those two guys, 10.1 to the Padres. Wisdom and Myers are very comparable in a, in a weird way. I mean, obviously they took much different paths to get here. Myers was big, huge top prospect who was traded and in some really high profile deals a couple of times has been around for a while, but he's actually only just a little bit older than Patrick Wisdom, who kind of bounced around the minors for a while and, and broke out finally in 2021. Um, there, there are different kinds of offense. Uh, Myers has a bit more of a refined approach. He's, he's a slightly above average bat. Um, in 2021, Wisdom was a slightly above average bat, but it was mainly from big raw power, a huge strikeout rate as well. So there's, there's some risk there in the bat. They're not, you know, they're not adding some star impact player, but they are adding a guy who's got a decent glove and the corner infield spots can play the corner outfield. Uh, they have that hole at first base so he can slot in there. He can DH some, whatever, whatever, the, wherever the need is. They're a team that really uh, values versatility between guys like Profar and Haseon Kim. And, you know, they even had Tatis playing the outfield, Jay Cronenworth. Um, they, they care about versatility and, and wisdom is just another cog in that machine. Um, but really it gets them out from under Will Myers contract, replaces him with a very similar offensive player in terms of, of, uh, aggregate production, but one with a much better defensive fit on the roster. The cost here is Campusano, who I think if they are trading one of their more valuable prospects, it's going to be him just because, as I mentioned, they have such a log jam at catcher. Um, I could see the argument otherwise. You know, he's still got plenty of ceiling. He's still plenty young. They could still keep him in AAA. But, I mean, they got to upgrade somehow. And to me, that just seems like the easiest way to, to both upgrade and to get out from the Will Myers contract. Um, from the Cubs' perspective, really quick, and then I'll let you chime in here. Um, the Cubs' perspective, uh, they're kind of in a weird spot. They don't seem like... They are ready to just give up either. They they signed Marcus Stroman and Jan Gomes this offseason, even though they traded Anthony Rizzo, Chris Bryant, and Javi Baez last trade deadline. Uh, there's also been some rumors that they could bring Anthony Rizzo back. But I, I don't think they're going to be giving up significant uh, young talent in any deal to try and contend. I think they're going to bring in some veterans, see what they can do while some of their top prospects work their way through the farm. Um, and this kind of fits that, you know, they can take a chance on Will Myers. It's a one-year deal. He has a club option next year that's certain to get declined. But they can take a chance on Myers, either slot him in at DH, first base, right field, whatever they choose to do. And, you know, maybe he builds up a little bit of trade value. Maybe he hits well enough, and then at the deadline, they cover some of his contracts, send him elsewhere, get a nice little prospect back. Uh, they get the real prize here in Campusano. 
Uh, they have Gomes and Wilson Contreras behind the plate right now. But Contreras, it's in the last year of his deal. He might be a guy who gets traded at the deadline or they let him walk or whatever. Uh, behind them, they do have Miguel Amaya. But as you pointed out to me on the last episode, he's injured right now. And so doesn't hurt to bring in another high talent, uh, high caliber prospect to kind of compete with him and to, you know, help fill in midseason potentially once Wilson Contreras is gone. And, and all it's costing them is Patrick Wisdom, who has really found money. They picked him up for free. He had a strong season, definitely has some risk. It's He's already 30. They're not going to get a whole bunch more out of him. He's not going to be a part of the next great Cubs team. So trade him now while his value is as high as it's pretty much going to be. So I like that one a lot. Props to KXW. Uh, what do you think, John? I like it too. Um, I think the Cubs are kind of following the Giants' blueprint. Not that it's, you know, unique to them or anything. But, you know, you mentioned, you know, they're going to try to um, – they're going to wait for their they know they're not ready to compete yet but they'll take what they can get while they're waiting for the next wave of prospects to come up and some of those young prospects are very young and they're in you know teenagers in some cases so it might be a while so you know i i think though that they're very aware of their fan base you know wanting to put some sort of representative product on and hey if they make the wild card if the playoffs are expanded yeah sure so um so I can see them kind of doing both sides, which is what the Giants have been doing, kind of playing the older veterans while waiting for the young guys to come up. Um, so, you know, I think it makes sense for them, sure, uh, to take a chance a little bit. I think they have some money to play with now, given that they signed Stroman, uh, so that they can do a deal like this. And as you mentioned, um, you know, their top catching prospect is injured, so they don't really have anything that I'm aware of coming up. Uh, behind Contreras, who's in his last year. So Camposano seems to fit that bill perfectly in terms of timeline. So, uh, yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense from a Cubs perspective. And I think it's a creative way to kind of, you know, uh, get 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 uh, a, free up a roster spot, is what I want to say, from you know, from the Padres' point of view with uh, finding a landing spot for Meyer. So, yeah. Yeah, so this deal has the Padres saving about $20 million. Um, That's Meyer's contract, and then... Uh, Campusano and Wisdom would both be league minimum. So, yeah. And if 20... you're right, about... oh, go ahead. Uh, if you're right about Hosmer being uh, a deadweight anchor, unmovable, then they're going to have to move Myers. I would think exactly. just to free up some money. Yeah. Yeah, I tried to look at it a couple different ways. With that, I know, you know, the first thing you look at is okay, they got to trade Myers or or Hosmer, but what if they can't? Um, so I, I tried to find another way to make it work, but there just isn't one. Because, you know, nobody's taking Ha Seung Kim or Jerickson Profar either. Both of those guys are underwater. They're not yeah. making a ton of money. So even if you do get to trade them, it's like, okay, cool. We have enough money to sign a reliever now. Like, th that's not, not a whole lot of benefit there. And you're still giving up prospects right. to get out from those guys. Uh, Drew Pomeranz is hurt. And he's when he's healthy, he's probably an important part of that bullpen. And then... Next guys on the list, you Darvish, Blake Snell. If you're going to be good, you need those guys, right? <laughs> like they they don't make sense to trade. You you look at the arbitration guys. The only one who's really making a ton of money there is Joe Musgrove. He's really really good. You're not trading him. Um, I will talk a little bit later about Denelson Lamette that maybe he's a guy, but that's 4.6 million projected. That's nothing. So yeah. really, it yeah. does come down to they have to trade either Myers or Hosmer. If if they are uh, if they're going to be able to spend anywhere on the roster really or yeah. or you know some grace from ownership that lets them just blow past the luxury tax or some big adjustment to the luxury tax whatever.
All right, so with that savings, I have them adding... Is, is white whale the term? <laughs> I'm uh-huh. adding AJ Preller's white whale. Uh, Joseph Gallo. So so in this deal, which is from user ehum37, the Padres are trading Chris Paddock at $17.4 million to the Yankees in exchange for Joey Gallo at 15.3 and shortstop prospect Hans Montero at 1.7. So 17.4 to the Yankees, 17 to the Padres. And so we have heard rumors for years now about Preller and the Padres wanting to add Joey Gallo. And it fits the kind of trend that we've seen this offseason of Preller picking up some of his old guys from the Rangers. And we know that Gallo could be on the outs in New York. I mean, they just gave up a pretty significant package to get him. But he struggled down the stretch. And, you know, it's it's a bit of a question mark. The, the Yankees would be a fascinating roster revamp, in my opinion. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll write that note down for later. Um, but they just have... They're in a bit of a similar position. Their difference is that they do have a farm system, but they are right up against the luxury tax and don't seem to want to go over. Um, and Gallo's making decent money. He's making nine and a half million uh, projected in his final year of arbitration. He wasn't a very good hitter for them down the stretch. And, you know, Yankees fans, the, the general public of Yankees fans, the general fan base doesn't like that style of hitter, doesn't like all the strikeouts. It's, it's a, difficult form of baseball to watch unless you really are in tune with things and you know how value is produced then you can see oh he's a great defender and he gets on base a ton and he has a lot of power i get it but if you're just looking at it from a casual perspective it's a guy hitting 185 or whatever and and they hate it (laughs) so not to say that the yankees should take fan considerations too much into account um but he's just not 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 a popular type of player there the counterpoint there is they need a center fielder and they need a left-handed hitter. And he's both of those things. Um, but maybe they try and add a guy like Brian Reynolds or, or just some other solution there that is a bit more appealing, a bit more of a top of the lineup table setter type for them. So, I mean, you you can go back and forth arguing it of whether the Yankees should or shouldn't trade Gallo. But the point is he's a trade candidate. He, he's a guy that has probably been talked about this offseason by them before, maybe even during the lockout. And the Padres have always loved him, and they've always wanted to get him, and he makes a ton of sense for them. Because their lineup, it's not necessarily right-handed heavy, but it's right-handed power heavy. So the Padres lineup, uh, projected by roster resource, resource, goes Trent Grisham, who's a left-handed hitter, not a huge power guy. He's a 15-20 homer tops guy. Fernando Tatis Jr., obviously huge power guy, right-handed hitter. Jake Cronenworth, left-handed hitter, not a huge power guy. Manny Machado, power guy, right-handed hitter. Eric Hosmer, not a good hitter at all. Not No real power there either. Left-handed hitter. Will Myers, right-handed hitter. I guess we already traded him away. <laughs> and replaced him with uh, Patrick Wisdom, who is a big right-handed power bat. Jerickson Profar, not a power hitter. Austin Nolan, not a power hitter. Nomar Mazzara, not a power hitter. So they're really missing some left-handed power from the lineup. And so I think Gallo, or, yeah, Gallo fits that perfectly. Gallo upgrades the outfield defense a ton, you know, going from Will Myers in right field to Gallo, or you let Gallo take center field, Grisham to Grisham right field, whatever arrangement they decide to do there, that's a huge upgrade. And yeah, I think I think he just makes a lot, of, he's a good fit for the roster, only one year of commitment, nine and a half million isn't a ton, they're still saving a lot of money, uh, you know, swapping out Myers for him, and they're also saving a little bit of money by getting rid of Chris Paddock. Uh, Paddock is interesting, and one of the comments on the article, on the revamp article, says it's hard 
I'm hard-pressed to see the Yankees trading Gallo for a guy who finished the season with a slight UCL sprain and a career home run per nine over 1.5. That's from user DBA. And I think that's a fair take, that Paddock isn't a super attractive trade piece right now because a lot, like a lot of the Padres' other trade pieces, he's injured and he's been struggling the last couple of years. But it's a lot of upside there for the Yankees. And and you can't you can't look at Joey Gallo and see that there's not you know, a bit of a damaged goods thing going on there as well. So, I mean, it's an interesting challenge trade type of swap, in my opinion, where it could really benefit the Yankees. Paddock has mid to frontline potential or could be a pretty solid multi-inning reliever, a Chad Green type. Or he could just get absolutely tanked in Yankee Stadium. That's a possibility. Or he could not pitch for them at all. So I, I see the complaints there, but I mean... If you're in the Yankees position, I don't know if you would rather, if and you're trading Joey Gallo for a pitcher, would you rather it be, I know the values aren't exactly lined up, but would you rather it be an Eliezer Hernandez type, where there's no upside there, it's just innings being eaten, whatever, or would you rather take a chance? Would you rather gamble for really hitting on a potential, I don't want to say potential ace, but a potential really valuable pitcher um, that, that could be under team control for a few more years? I don't, yeah. I don't know what the answer is there from the Yankees side of it, but I like the idea of it. Um, and, and just really quick, second piece heading to the Padres, Hans Montero here. Uh, it can be whoever you want it to be. This is just who e um, 37 chose here. He's at 1.7 million in trade value, but he seems like a Preller type. Preller has been great at identifying international talent, um, at picking the right lottery tickets. That's exactly what he did with Tatis. And Montero maybe isn't the the massive upside type like Tatis where he looks like he's going to grow into much power, but he's got a lot of speed. He's an infielder with some pedigree. He could grow a little bit more. Um, and I think that makes sense for Preller to kind of start restocking the farm in preparation for the next kind of rebuild retool, whatever you want to call it. So that's, that's my piece about that trade. Uh, you're up, John. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. So I got some mixed feelings about this one. I think Gallo makes a ton of sense to fill that left field hole for the Padres. And as you mentioned, he's a Preller guy. Um, I think it wouldn't cause them any harm from the Padres standpoint to get rid of Paddock. Um, so from the Yankees standpoint is where I'm sort of fretting a little bit. Um, I, I, I live in the New York City area, and I, I don't think the Yankee fans have given up on Gallo. They know he was only there for two months. They liked the idea of getting him in the first place. They know it was a small sample size, at least the more informed ones do. Um, you're right that he's a three true outcomes guy and they want more contact hitting. They want more of a balanced lineup. He's also a lefty hitter and they also have too many righties like Judge and Stanton and so on. So I think at least from a, from a lefty-righty standpoint, they're fine with him. Um, for, but for the most part, I'm think, I, I think they're okay with giving him another year. So they might be going... What? The other factor here from the Yankees point of view is they are much more focused on filling the other holes that are more pressing like shortstop first base uh probably another starting pitcher so Gallo is probably the least of their concerns when you when they're fact focused on those other needs um they want to win now so the last thing they want to do is give up a pitcher I mean excuse me a player that they think could be a solo contributor albeit maybe not not the most perfect fit or in terms of style but nonetheless can be a, a good contributor um, for, you know, to create yet another hole. Uh, keep in mind also the short porch in right field in Yankee Stadium benefits Gallo tremendously. He's going to hit 40 home runs, presumably, in a in a full year. So, you know, and I think, to your point about Paddock and the sort of floor versus ceiling, 
I do think, yeah, he was really good when he came up, and then he's run into some problems since then. But I mean, remember that they traded for for Tyone, and they traded, they signed Corey Kluber last year for those same reasons. They wanted to Campbell on upside, and Tyone sort of, kind of, sort of delivered. I wouldn't say he was a top of the line starter, but he, but he at least stayed healthy and gave him like three number three starter stuff. So I think, okay, that one paid off. The Kluber one did not, but they're willing to gamble on upside. So I think that part of it is okay. Although I think they'd really want to scrutinize Paddock South to see if he's okay before making that gamble. Yeah. yeah. But in general, I'm not quite sure this is the right right fit for the Yankees because I just don't see them trading Gallo so soon. Um, if they could work out another deal with the Padres, that might work. But yeah, but then, you know, that probably doesn't make sense because probably would want Gallo. And so they'd say, okay, fine. <laughs> so hang up. So yeah, I'm not sure I see it. Yeah. So one of my the limitations I'm faced with for the roster revamp series is that I'm picking user submitted proposals. So even if yeah. I think something will work a little better, I feel like it's cheating for me to put something through the simulator, post it and say, Hey, a user named uh, Joshua Iverson posted <laughs> this proposal. He sounds like a really handsome, smart guy. Um, so I, I, I see something like this where I, I knew pretty early on that I wanted the Padres to get Gallo because it just makes a lot of sense. And I knew pretty early on that Paddock is one of their better trade chips more more likely trade chips i guess i could say and so this deal had both and, and i agree it's it's a much better deal for the padres and for their needs and it seems more realistic for them than it does for the yankees i wonder if there's some sort of a three-team configuration of this that works better mm. you know pre pre josh young injury maybe there's a deal where paddock goes to the rangers kiner falefa goes to the yankees and you know gallo and, and, and montero or not montero whoever go to the Padres I, mm-hmm. completely just spitballing there but I I think there there's a fit to be found somewhere it, it's yeah. not this specifically but the idea here of rather than ransacking through the farm trading selling low on Mackenzie Gore trading Ryan Weathers etc trying to get what they can out of Chris Paddock because I think there are going to be teams who are interested in him assuming the medicals pan out and i think he's a really good change of scenery candidate so yeah yeah okay so it's a good thought yeah yeah all right and then my last points here um are in free agency i know i skipped past that for the rays because they don't really have a lot of money to spend ever and my suggestion was suggestion was go find some good relievers for cheap because that's what you guys are good at uh but for the padres they still need an outfielder even after adding gallo since they traded away myers uh, I think M- Michael Conforto is the best fit for them. Kind of a buy low. He's he's a pretty young free agent. He's not 29 yet, and he was uh, he did struggle a bit in 2021 after a really good 2022 season. So I think he I, I don't think he's gonna let his market be priced down too much. But I still think even at a pretty fair price, he could be the bargain of the off season in free agency. I think he's a really good hitter who just had a down year, and he's gonna rebound with some other team. But if that doesn't quite fit into the budget, or I believe the draft pick is still attached to him, whatever, if that doesn't work. Um, other names, they could bring Tommy Pham back. I know that's not exciting, but he's a productive player when he's healthy, and I think he's, he could, to a lesser extent, he could be a bargain like Conforto. I, I believe in a bounce back for him. Or a guy like Eddie Rosario, Jock Peterson, Corey Dickerson, one of those guys just... They need another corner outfielder. They don't need it to be a superstar. They have enough star power on offense. They just need a quality contributor. Uh, and they, they don't really have any minor league options. So they, they need to go grab a free agent at that position. Mm-hmm. 
in the bullpen, they could maybe use another arm. The one that really sounds like it makes sense to me is Colin McHugh. He seems to kind of fit their Craig Stammen mold, a little bit of the Kirby Yates, like this veteran reliever who just gets outs and he's not the flashiest, but really quietly, really productive. Um, I, I like him as a fit there. He's 35. So it'll even as good as he was in 2021, it's probably only going to be a one or two year deal. Uh, other names I mentioned were Ryan Tapera, Andrew Chafin, Joe Kelly, Chris Martin. I don't think they're paying Kenley Jansen. I think he probably goes back to Los Angeles if I had to bet. Um, but I like McHugh the best as a fit there. And then I mentioned that, um, like I mentioned before, Nelson Lamette, he's got $2.5 million in, in trade value. And he's projected to earn $4.5 million in arbitration. So if they need to cut salary further, he's an option. And, you know, they could move him for you know, a cheaper reliever or a depth outfielder or something like that or, or whatever they need. Yeah. Can I just, I just want to make one comment on Lamette. Um, he used to have really high trade value, but that's because he was a starter and he had that really good year where he was just, you know, mowing them down, but then he broke down and it's clear he was not durable enough to handle the starters workload and the Padres knew this, which is why they had to go out and trade from Musgrove and Darvish and Snell, because they couldn't count on Lamette, who continued to not stay healthy. So at best, he's, I think, at the, I think the industry season now is a reliever. He still has a good arm, but he's an oft-injured reliever right now, which is why his trade value has collapsed. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that makes him a trade candidate, a possible one for another team to take a chance on. But that, that depends on financials. I think unless they have to, I would probably hang on to Lamette. He's got late-inning bullpen upside because he is such a – the talent is there. It's just the injury risk. Um, and, you know, he could blossom into a real a real late-inning threat, and they don't really have a great one of those right now um, after Mark Melanson walked. So I think I would prefer to hang on to him. And then same thing with Victor Caratini, who I mentioned. Uh, he's projected to earn $2.1 million in arbitration, and I mentioned kind of the catching logjam. But he does have an option, and Padres don't have any other minor league catching depth since they I have them trading away Campusano. So it doesn't hurt to keep him around, and especially, you know, if Darvish likes him. Someone goes down or Alfaro doesn't perform, whatever, he's the next man up. So that's where I have the Padres. I, it's going to be tough for them. I have all of the faith in the world that Preller will pull it off. I don't know how, uh, but this is essentially a framework of what I would do with some help from user proposals good smart all right so we are kind of coming up on time here um i think we're going to save our prospect talk and farm system rankings we'll save that for a later episode probably the next episode but we'll have to see there no promises um instead i do want to briefly go through our highest and lowest um so this is a page that is on the top of the site uh that i don't think gets quite as many looks as it could it's a fun one to just see all of the players in the system where they rank highest to lowest in trade value. Um, and you have all their information there, their position, their age, their team, their actually team isn't on there, but their, their position, their age, uh, their level, their years of control remaining salary, adjusted field value surplus, and then their low, medium, high, and then uh, links to their fan graphs pages. So really cool resource. And we did see a couple people on Twitter potentially using it as they kind of tweeted out some top 10 and bottom 10 lists. Um, so if we briefly want to go uh, through the top 10, uh, where do you want to start? Do you want to start at the top or do you want to start at number 10? <clears throat> Let's count down. 
so and so just to be clear because there were some questions that were floating around twitter when um you know these these eager these uh these nice people were sharing this we're actually like doing a cut of it so and so i think there was a subsequent one that did it by position or or was it minor leaguers or prospects i think that was it but anyway top 10 um so let's do a little math here four five six seven eight nine ten oh yes uh, that, so, and it, just before we do it, it, this is all, of course, based on our system of valuing major leaguers, uh, predominantly based on surplus value. So sometimes people ask, oh, does that include contracts? Um, yes, and so contracts play a big factor here, and years of control play a big factor here. So you'll often get um, guys who have longer years of control at the top of this list. And so that's where we'll start. Uh, number 10 is Kyle Tucker of the Astros. He's still only 24 years old, he has four years of control. His trade value is 114.3. He's broken out into a very good player. Um, he's one of these guys that's still late, making league minimum, I, I believe. I'll double check that. Um, which is why the Players Association thinks something should, like that should be trained. Should be changed. A, a good player like him should not be um, this underpaid. And as I mentioned earlier, sometimes trade value is a way of showing how an underpaid a, a good player is. And I would think he would fit that bill, which is why he has 114 in surplus value. Yeah, I don't have, I don't think I'll have much to add for any of these, <laughs> okay. other than other than my uh, personal opinion of uh, admitting that Kyle Tucker is a guy I completely missed on. I <laughs> I saw him, this spindly guy who didn't wear batting gloves and had a weird long looking swing, and I thought, okay, that's got bust written all over it. But no, he's a stud. He had an incredible 2021 season. He's a really fun player. I've come around on him. I I like yeah. him a lot. Um, and I will, I will admit to being wrong sometimes. You're not alone. There are many people who thought that he doesn't look like he's w- would have been that, but boy, he can sure hit. And that's that's in in prospect evaluators. I, I would give them credit for him. They hung tough with Kyle Tucker. He was a former top ten prospect, and people said, "Really? Yeah." Now you see why. Okay, number nine. This one is not a surprise. Walker Bueller uh, has now become the Dodgers' ace, although one could argue about that point, but, but he's certainly top of rotation guy. Um, still has three, three years of control, and his trade value is 117.6. Um, he's already into his first ARB year this coming year, but uh, or he might have been a Super 2. I'll double-check. But in any case, he's still vastly underpaid given what starting pitchers go for, especially in his prime. He's only 26 probably even has another gear to come to get even better and he's demonstrated that in the playoffs so he's a guy any any team would love to have at the top of their rotation Bueller is super two by the way yes um, I would actually push back just ever so slightly on you, you, you preface this by saying no surprise here Walker Bueller I think it, it could be a bit of a surprise to some people I think he gets a little slept on I yeah. he one of these years, he's going to win a Cy Young, I feel like. He's so talented, but he's been behind so much star power in the Dodgers rotation and, and so many star offensive players in L.A. Like, it's easy to it's easy to kind of forget about Walker Bueller, but he's really, really good. And it's it's a testament to that, that a starting pitcher with only three years of control is the ninth most valuable player in terms of trade value, at least yeah. according to our system. And I think uh, that shows something there. And I think he should get the attention that he deserves. Yeah. All right. Okay. Number eight. Um, this one surprises a little people a little bit, but then if you follow the sport in the contracts, you'll understand why. Number eight is Ozzy Albies. He's you know second baseman of the world champion uh, Atlanta Braves. He has six years of control. His 
trade value is 117.8. Um, we know that second basemen are not as highly valued by the market, but he is so underpaid relative. He's a four or five win player, and he's he, he's only got um, the Braves only owe him 31.5 million to come. Uh, I'm sorry, excuse me, I read the wrong number. Uh, they owe him 40 million over the next six years. When that when that contract was announced, people were like what? Uh, really thought he signed too soon. Really thought that was that was a steal for the Braves. Our, in, in our model, that's certainly what it looks like. You know, he's it's just about surplus value here because that contract is so so light compared to what he's delivering. And and he's only 24. There may be even more in the tank there. Yeah, not no dig it out Ozzy Albies whatsoever. Very talented player, very fun. Uh, he's pretty clearly the most flawed player in this top 10 because he is a second baseman. And we've talked extensively about how under how second baseman is one of the least, one of the most least valuable positions. And you got to really hit to be a valuable second baseman in terms of trade value. And he's also got pretty wild platoon splits. He's a switch hitter who maybe shouldn't be. Uh, he's, he's much better at hitting from the right hand side. And so there have been some discussions over whether he will shift to that, but regardless, as you said, he's a four or five win player, very talented, and the contract just does a whole bunch of work here. Um, and really, if you need an example for why the union is pushing so heavily for earlier in a career guys to, to make more money, more according to their talent kind of thing, this is the guy. This is the example right here. He took a crazy below market extension offer because this is a guy who wasn't a huge international uh, uh, amateur prospect didn't get a huge signing bonus worked his way through the minor leagues on minor league salary made it to the bigs got a portion of major league salary for the part of the year that he was up and so that's still decent money but if you have a family to support whether it's you know a family you're starting or your parents back home whatever and if you weren't raised with much to begin with or anything like that it, it can be very easy to just sign the check when it's put in front of you and that's i mean i'm sure Ozzy Albies is very happy with his money, and I don't. I'm not saying that we should force, we should make decisions for these people or anything. Everyone's financial decision is uh, situation is their own, and they can make those decisions themselves. Um, but the, the union is looking for better leverage in these positions where guys don't have to just take the first check that's put in front of them so they can you know, right. support their family and ensure their long-term future. They can hold out for what the market dictates they should be paid. Right. At least something yeah. close to it. Yeah, and I can't speak for, obviously, Ozzy Albies and his decisions, but yeah, I mean, there's a general point here, which you made, and I'll re reiterate, which is they shouldn't have to take under market money just to try to get paid earlier in their career if they, they need to or want to. Um, it could be, the system could be a little bit more fair to them than that. Uh, okay, uh, next, number seven, one of my favorite players, still only 23, shortstop for the Toronto Blue Jays, Bo Bichette. So exciting to watch. Great field to hit. Uh, four years of control. We have him at 127.7 in medium trade value. And this is just, this guy is just like, he's just so much fun to watch. And, you know, he's still got these best years ahead of him i think um there's a little bit of a question whether he sticks at shortstop um so in time if he moves off the position it could change his trade value but for now we're assuming he's still going to be a shortstop and um, obviously when they signed marcus Simeon last year Simeon moved to second they kept Bo at, at short so maybe the blue jays feel the same way uh, they do have some talent coming up behind him though who could displace him but for now 
he's a four year he's got another four years of control and another another guy who is severely underpaid which is why he's a combination of great field value great projections low pay you get a lot of surplus bobachet very talented very fun player i agree i'm gonna do a quick little spoiler here uh do you want to briefly explain why he is the highest ranked toronto blue jay and vlad guerrero jr is not in the top 10 uh, because Vlad has one year less of control. Let me just double check that. And he's a first baseman. Not the greatest first baseman defensively either, because it's all about defensive value. You're going to get a lot more defensive value playing short than you will playing first base. And and some see Vladdy as a future DH as well. So, you know, it's mostly about that. Oh, yeah, they have the same. Oh, sorry, he has four years of control as well, but it's the discount that we apply for first base DH types. That really is the difference. Understood. Who's next? Okay, number seven, another young star. This one for the Chicago White Sox, Luis Robert. Or is it Luis Robert? I'm never quite sure. Uh, 24 years old, signed a contract extension a while back. Uh, he has six years of control, which is why he's so high at 148 in median trade value. Exciting young player. Still, I think, is the best is yet to come. You know, uh, players typically peak at uh, around 26, 27, 28. So a lot of these guys you see, in fact, all of them have been just under that mark. So a lot of them have the best years to come. So uh, yeah, uh, he's fun to watch. Uh, Chicago fans, I'm sure, are delighted. Yeah, I think he also gets a little bit slept on because he hasn't played a full healthy season yet. But when he did play, I believe it was only like 50 games or something like that in 2021, he was incredible. And I think he's a big talent and he should be, he, he deserves to be up here where he is. Uh, I mean, obviously the contract is a contributing factor there, but also his adjusted field value is very, very high. He's a very talented player. Yep. Number five is the top pitcher on the list, and it's the National League Cy Young winner, Corbin Burns. This may surprise some people. Um, He is at 160.8 in our model. Um, What we have noticed is that starting pitchers are always in high demand, on a dollar per war basis they are the highest and especially the good ones you don't you know they're rarely on the market which is why you saw max scherzer get 43 million dollars from the mets so imagine if corbin burns you know was a trade candidate and how many people would be aching you know itching to to get at that guy that that would be huge and he had an insane year his numbers were just off the charts and he just dominated hitters and he's got three years of control so again still underpaid for those rb years um so that's why we have him so high yeah, he's he's somewhat comparable in terms of performance, at least in, in 2021, to, to what we've been seeing from Jacob deGrom the last couple of years, except he's still going through arbitration, so making much lower salaries, and he's, at least to this point, been on the field more consistently. And so, yeah, it's, it's not a huge surprise to me, at least, that a guy that talented, that effective, and that affordable for right now is ranked so highly. Yep. And now we're going to get to the top four, who are the probably the four biggest young stars in the game, starting with Juan Soto. He's still only 22, entering his year 23 of this coming season. Still has three years of control, just in his ARB years. I believe he was Super 2, but he's still vastly underpaid compared to what he can do. He's such a big star, such an un- amazing hitter. He's getting comparisons to Mickey Mantle and other greats. Uh, we have him at 224.7 in median trade value. I, obviously, there was a report came out this week that he turned down an extension offer of, I believe it was $350 million. And then there was a piece on Fangrass, uh, I think by uh, 
uh, Dan Samborski, who said, well, he was right to turn it down because he's worth a lot more than that. And our numbers would suggest that as well, although we're only measuring the three that he has left under control. But he's an amazing star. And the reason why he's not even higher is because he only has three years compared to the next three guys we'll talk about. It's incredible. You, you can't it's you, you can't not just be in awe of Juan Soto, even compared to some of these other guys that are all superstars in their own right. I think Soto's offensive production, and he, he's taken big steps defensively as well, but his bat especially is just something to behold. Like, if, if he's a guy where if he had taken one of those early career extensions, like the Luis Robert one or something like that, and you were looking at like five, six years of control remaining right now, he's easily at the top of the list, even though yeah. all three of the guys ahead of him on the list have more than seven years of control. So just uh, incredible, incredible. I mean, there's only so many ways we can say it for each of these guys. He's some of the best players in the game. Of course, they're incredible, uh, but he's he's a special one to me. Yep. Number three is Fernando Tatis Jr., uh, shortstop for the Padres. We have him at 246.0 in median trade value. He has 13 years of control based on that big contract extension he signed. Um, he's still owed $329 million, but he's still only 22. And so the Padres are getting the next 13 years, his age 23 through 34, 35, whatever that is. You know, that's when you add that all up, it, it it's insane. It's 552.6 million in estimated AFV field value, you know, over 329 million in salary. What the Padres did smartly is pay in advance for his peak years, which are yet to come. And I know he's got some shoulder trouble and there's a question of whether he stays at short or not. But man, that he's an electric talent and you haven't even seen the best of him yet. So you can imagine how he's going to perform you know, in his age 26 or 28 years, for example, which he's not even close to yet. So he's already a star. He's going to get even better. Yeah, I, I will. I don't mean to say anything negative about any of these guys because they're all so fun to watch. And I love Fernando Tatis Jr. I think he's so good for baseball, so good for San Diego, all of it. So this is this is not intended as a slight at him in any way. However, I could see the last handful of years of his deal being a little bit uglier than the last handful of years of a couple of these other deals that we've talked about, just because it does take him so late into his career. And, you know, he has had some injury issues and the strikeouts and there's been defensive questions, whatever. Uh, again, do not, I, I regret even saying that. I don't want to bring any negativity <laughs> to this conversation. This is a fun conversation, uh, but I just want it to be said somewhere, recorded somewhere for history that, <laughs> of this kind of group of guys we're talking about wouldn't be surprised if toward the end of his contract we see him go underwater and have one of the bigger collapses there you know kind of stantonian i guess you could compare it to uh, <laughs> yeah but, there you go but who yeah. knows maybe this will be something we all laugh at in five years me even having thought of saying this stupid thing haha I, I i was wrong again good job no I think you're the voice of reason here, but I also also should know we bake in like decline years in the end of each of these. Of contracts. course. So yeah. obviously, yeah. So, you know, he may decline, but we may have already baked that in. So your point is he may decline even more than we've estimated based on some other factors. And he's just so much more valuable than what he's being paid in these first handful of years that it, it compensates exactly. for that. Yeah. Okay. And speaking of that, um, the next two guys are very much in that category as well. Number two is Wander Franco. Only 20 years old. Unbelievable. He's a kid. Uh, can't even rent a car yet. Um, and that contract extension he signed was for 12 years. We have him at a median value of 301.8, which is basically do the math. That's how much value we think he's 
going to how much surplus value he's going to deliver. We think he's going to deliver 527.8 million in field value over the next 12 years, and that could even be an under understatement because he's only 20 uh, against a contract that um, guarantees him 226 so far. Um, so there's a big 300 million dollar gap there. Uh, it's an insane and like you got to. People think, oh, why would the Rays give up such a big contract? Because he's 20 and he, and he's obviously going to be a superstar and you're going to get the best years of control, you know, just like we were saying with Tatis. So it, to me, that's a no-brainer. Maybe he moves to third base down the road right now. He's just fine as a shortstop. And he's um, and one of the things that doesn't get talked about as much is how patient of a hitter is. Like, he'll take a walk. He'll have a high on-base percentage. He'll He's a complete hitter, which you don't see for a kid who's 20 years old. That's just an amazing you know, investment, I think right there and good for the Rays for extending him. Yeah. I want to talk about Wander for just a minute. I have a feeling this is one that of anybody on this list, I think this is the one that could get the most pushback because, oh my goodness, you really think this guy who's played what a hundred games, 120 major league games. I get he's a big prospect, but you guys really think that he's the second most valuable player in baseball, according to like by trade value. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty confident in, in agreeing and saying, yes, he is because Another one of the things that I think comes up here is that I don't think Wander is the type where he's going to put up some nine, ten war, you know, Trout, Tatis, a, a Soto, that one of those massive seasons. I don't think he's necessarily that kind of player, but his floor is so high. He plays a premium defensive position. He's a switch hitter. He's a five tool guy. He's got speed, defense, bat, some power he's growing into. And like you said, his plate discipline is just incredible for a 20 year old. He's a great contact hitter and he takes his walks and it's, he does everything so well. And it's, he has such an advanced feel at the plate for a 20 year old. This is why he was the top prospect and why he was one of the better prospects we've seen in a long, long time. Um, so, so it's pretty clear, big floor there, which, which does a lot of work here. But also when you're comparing these guys, this isn't a list of the most talented guys in baseball. This is the most trade value. Right. Would you rather, for your franchise, have 12 years of Wander Franco at a pretty affordable contract for those 12 years, or just three years of similarly affordable, but just three years of Juan Soto? Exactly. That answer is much. That answer is very <laughs> clear to me. We are in no way saying that Wander Franco is a better baseball player right now than Juan Soto. He may never be a better baseball player than Juan Soto. But the contract that he's on plays such a massive role here. 12 years of the guy. That takes him into his early 30s, not even really deep into the decline phase. Right. And even in those last few years, his contract, I believe, is under $30 million. It's in, it's in like the low to mid-20s or something. Mm-hmm. Insane. So yeah, that there's my piece on that one. Yeah, and to your earlier point, yes, he's still not totally established himself. He, he A lot of prospects come out with a bang, but then they have a sophomore slump, but then they kind of figure it out in the third year. And he's... he. he most people in the game think, oh yeah, he'll, don't worry about that. He's, he's got all the skills, you know, he's mature enough, you know, he'll be fine. So, um, and we'll see, but I think that's the only knock you could make on that, but all of the other factors weighing on that 12 years undervalued and so on and so forth. I think that that justifies it. And now the number one, most valuable trade value, uh, player in the game, according to our model is Ronald Acuna Jr. of the Braves. At 
yes, yeah, so there's only two players who are above three, and that's Franco and Acuna. Acuna it might surprise people because he didn't really play much because he he was out most of the year with an injury, but he's still got seven years of control. He's still a you know amazing talent. When you know he's played so far, he's been electric. Uh, we estimate him for 440 million in field value against only 118.9 million in salary, which is why he got such a big surplus. He's still only 23, like all these other uh, young players. He still got, you know, hasn't even come close to his peak yet. I don't think the injury is going to be a major issue, um, and most people in the industry don't either. So I think he's just going to rake in the next seven years that they have him. So would you rather have seven years of Acuna in his prime? And, you know, you probably would. So um, that's where we're that's where we're coming from here. Yeah, at this point. With once we get into these guys and and they are so many years of control, like you will you wouldn't be totally off base if you just say I would actually prefer twelve years of Wander Franco than seven years of Ronald Acuna Jr. Because you look at the difference, it's twenty million dollars. That's you're talking like a half a win difference, if that, for a few years in the deal that that shift that like the margin of error increase like the 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 quantity of the margin that we're talking here increases once you get into these high numbers and these long deals. So this isn't to say that absolutely objectively Acuna is worth so much more than Wander Franco, but I'm pretty comfortable saying he's number one. (laughs) All right. That was fun. I don't, let's, let's end on a positive note. We don't need to do the the bottom. We can, if we want to do that down the road, we can, I think there are some interesting names down there that, people might not think about and, and that might be a little eye-opening but I agree. Uh, it, it would be a good discussion but right now we've been going long enough we had a bit of a heavy start to the episode let's end it on this high note agreed do you have anything else you want to uh add in before we wrap up the episode nope all righty in that case that'll do it for this week thank you all so much for listening if you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us an email at baseballtradevalues at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at baseballvalues. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. We'll be back in a couple weeks to break down more news and updates. So until then, stay safe, enjoy the lockout, and fingers crossed we get some good news next week. Thanks, Lock John. It on All right, thanks, Josh.